0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week in our search for truth, we look at the government versus parliament smackdown in Canberra, the state of emergency that Trump has declared in order to build a wall, and finally, is space the final frontier or are they called moonshots for a reason? I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Berg, who is on the line from the US of A, where he's banging on about blockchain for RMIT University. Chris, welcome.
1: Thanks, Scott. I'm literally in Silicon Valley at the moment. It looks just as the TV show has led me to believe that uh, Silicon Valley should look like, so I'm really looking forward to talking about Australian politics.
0: Well, are we ever going to get you back? That's the question, but good luck with that. <laughs> Today, we're joined by our special guest panelists, uh, Gideon Rosner, the IPA's Director of Policy.
2: It's great to be here,
3: Scott,
0: and our other guest, Richard Alsop, uh, who is returning to Looking Forward. And once again, I shall describe him as an ornament to the IPA. <laughs>
3: Yes, I was hoping you'd do that again, Scott. I enjoyed you doing that last time. So it's a great pleasure to be back with you again. I think we'll get on the
0: website and just add that to your description. (laughs) And uh, as always in our final segment, I'll be asking the panellists what they've been reading, watching or listening to. So hang around for that. If you're listening on iTunes or any other great podcast platform, don't forget to subscribe so that you get all of our episodes. And of course, check out uh, the other great IPA podcasts, including Great Books and the Young IPA podcast. But first up, it was big news uh, when the Medivac bill made it through the federal parliament without support from the Morrison government. The first such defeat for a government since goodness knows when, and now all eyes are on what this means for our parliamentary system and whether it might keep keep happening. Chris Berg.
1: Yeah, so government lost the first vote on a significant legislative matter since either 1941 or 1929, depending on on how you count it. The bill that they lost was the, um, technically the Home Affairs Legislation Amendment Miscellaneous Measures Bill 2018. Um, it's the uh, called the Medivac Bill, or being called the Medivac Bill, and it's about moving asylum seekers to Australia um, uh, under certain circumstances involving um, uh, I- involving medical advice. Now, I think this is interesting not because of the specifics of the debate, and most of the discussion has focused on um, the merits of the Medevac bill um, uh, I- I- in the last week or so, but really this is more important because of um, the government's control of the parliament. In the or Westminster system, does this Does this government still have control of the parliament and what does that mean for the way, um, uh, how should we view them in that light? Now, my view, my personal view is that Scott Morrison and the government should have called an election that day. I think that would have been in their political interest. But what we're now seeing over the last couple of days last week or so, is just a never-ending debate about whether the government can hold back against legislative proposals from the opposition or from the crossbench, really bringing into question um, its capacity to hold hold control of, control of Parliament.
2: Well, I'm not sure, Chris, uh, you know, my view is that I don't think they needed to call an election, and I think on most readings uh, they did lose control. Uh, or that the, they did lose control of the government. They may have lost control of Parliament over certain legislative matters, but the, what in, what matters in our parliamentary system is that the government can go to the Governor-General and say uh, that they have the confidence and supply of the House and are capable of forming a government. I mean... Having legislation originate from people other than the executive government isn't necessarily new for the system. Don't forget we have private members' bills, we have um, you know all sorts of other things, uh, you know motions and, and things like that that occur. I'm not sure that losing on one piece of legislation, it looks messy, but I don't think that you could say on the reading that the government has lost uh, you know, confidence and supply of the key crossbenchers that have still maintained that they're gonna, going to
1: give it to them. So, you know, no, in, in one sense, in one sense, I think that's right, Gideon, like in a formal sense, mm. the government hasn't lost control because the governor general hasn't stepped in or there hasn't been a explicit confidence motion in the house that they've lost or a supply problem or anything like that. But on the other hand, this is now in a, Australian parliament is now in a position that we are not sure which way bills in the house of Representatives representatives are going to fall and whether the parliament can be enacting legislation against the will of the elected government. That is not a sustainable situation. I think the government has has noticed this, and 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 I don't think it's interesting from a sort of day to day political sense, but it's an interesting thing about how we understand our Westminster system. Um, do we do we believe that you know governments are um, sort of an American style executive, or are they creatures of the house? And if they're the creatures of the house, I think I think I think we should be trying to test this in uh, in an election.
3: I think. Point would be, if this was halfway through an electoral term, this would be a much bigger issue than it is at the moment. I mean, as it happens, once the government gets through this week, they then have four weeks without parliament and then return largely just to bring in the budget. So, and I think it's really... I don't even think the opposition particularly are keen to force the issue too much because everybody's just factored in we're going to have a federal election in May. You have the complicating factor if you were trying to have an election earlier than that of the New South Wales election. Um, And the other thing, while I think it looked a bit, to use Gideon's word, a a bit messy, I think people have so factored in that federal politics has become generally messy (laughs) that one more little bit of messiness didn't really um, cut through. And you sort of have... the. the ironic thing being that on the little bit of evidence we have so far of one poll, it actually losing a vote in the parliament actually increased the government's <laughs> um, standing with the public, which is not the sort of thing you'd normally expect to have happen. So it's a very, I think, unique set of circumstances that we have with this, and um, I think you know the government will stumble on. Still, well, I, clearly they want to bring down a budget because they see the other part of what they want to do is to out their economic credentials, and I think everybody's sort of content with going to an election in May and you know, leaving, leaving maybe then leaving some of the mess behind us.
2: The other fascinating thing about this, actually, in terms of the parliament versus executive dynamic, is parliament passed the Medivac bill requiring the government to, or the government of the day, such as it is, to move start evacuating people currently on Nauru to Australia. The funny thing is watching the executive government try to defeat that or try to change the meaning of that by reopening Christmas Island. So, um, and Peter Dutton hasn't ruled out that Christmas Island will be used to, as a place for evacuees to go for medical treatment. So um, you you see that the intent of the bill, the spirit of the bill has actually been defeated by ministerial power, which is uh, an interesting dynamic and shows that Uh, At the end of the day, the government is still large and in charge insofar as it does have ministerial and executive authority and it's still exercising it. Yeah,
0: I think that's a really good point, Gideon, because uh, Chris used the phrase before, you know, is government a creature of the parliament? Well, I don't think government's ever supposed to be a creature of the parliament. It's meant to be accountable Mm. to parliament. And uh, this has all been blurred a little bit in recent years because uh, technically it's responsible to the House of Reps, but, you know, if you can't get stuff through the Senate... Uh, it's it, it blurs those lines, and now you can't get stuff through the house either. Um, but the exe- this has been a great educative experience, and I as I say <laughs> on the cricket, I hope that the all the children at home are following this. It. Sorry, Chris.
1: The last decade has been fantastic for educating people about how Parliament works. Huh. Exactly. <laughs> so
0: this this uh, you know when when Howard had control of both houses of parliament, it was pretty hard to educate a young person about the difference between the executive and the Parliament. Uh, whereas so when
2: Barnaby Joyce woke up on the wrong side of bed.
0: Yeah, but now it's has been three, and he's, he's doing that again. But we, yeah. we're thrown, in, thrown into um, sharp relief that the executive does uh, exist independent and, and, of course, the Americans, uh, the Montesquieu, uh, borrowed this idea of the separation of, of powers from the British system and, and actually built it into their constitution. Now, it does get blurred when... Governments have easy control of the house, but in both the UK and Australia, we just we're just seeing much older dynamics come back, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing at all.
1: No, and what I think is quite interesting to pick up the the point that Gideon and Richard have made that it it looked messy. I think we're we're moving into a era of systemic messiness in the Australian Parliament. Um, over the last couple of uh, over the last decade, we've seen shorter and shorter governments. Um, uh, we've seen more and more, uh, more and more prime ministers rolling each other and so forth. But I think over time and what we're now seeing is that the growth of the crossbench is going to make less and less stable governments. We're on a trajectory towards further instability on the floor of the Parliament. Now we we will expect this because the trend towards voting against the major parties is is consistent and strong. In the last, in the 2016 election, more than 25% of voters voted against the major parties in the Senate, including against the Greens as a major party. Um, That trend has been growing since the Howard years. It's going to increase and going to increase. We're going to see more and more minority governments or near minority governments and we're going to see a lot more of this messiness which is why I think this is an interesting um, instance that we are going to have to reckon with more and more what does it mean when the government is forced to enact new legislation that it doesn't support um, changes to its own policy that it doesn't support and, and maybe, you know, maybe the administrative state is strong enough to resist that. Um, uh, but but right now I think we have to look at this as a, a a harbinger of things to come.
2: I think the other point to make though is that Australia would not be Robinson Crusoe and having a parliament where the the political party and remember political parties are, you know, relatively modern innovation in parliamentary systems, but where the political party holding government doesn't have a majority. I mean, wouldn't surprise you to know that i follow israeli politics pretty closely and there the government the party gets about the governing party gets about 30 seats out of 120 and has to stitch together a coalition and might get railroaded into all sorts of things it not, might not necessarily want but i acknowledge that's a bad example because too often there the coalition partners decide to take their bat and ball and leave the coalition and that does trigger fresh elections so
1: but i think that's good i mean i i think that's healthy if you've got a um, uh, if you've got more than just a duopoly in, uh, in, in in the parliaments, you have a much more dynamic and um, diverse mm. political debate. You've got a capacity to raise issues that, that aren't otherwise raised when it's just a duopoly system. I think that's actually really healthy, and I, I hope that we move more towards this coalitional um, – uh, you see it a lot in Europe as well, the, um, a, a system of coalitional parliaments that are – very unstable but um it seemed to represent the views of the population much more dynamically.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean oddly we've all are very used to coalition governments in Australia it's just the one the coalition that we have has been unusually stable in mm-hmm. terms of political parties over you know that they've largely been together for 100 years now working two parties working as one.
0: So we we'll lead that but well, uh, I-, I think Chris though, uh, we shouldn't overstate I mean no there's an old rule in economics that you know if any if any trend, um, you know, is pointing towards in infinity, then it's not going to continue forever because it will actually destroy itself. And I don't know that this we should assume that the trend towards fragmentation and more minor parties will continue forever. And and in the House of Reps, of course, it's elected on a very different system to the Senate. The preferential voting, which is partly partly why the coalition has mm. survived, uh, is something that contributes very much towards a. A two-party system, so I'm not sure that what what we've seen in the in the Senate will necessarily reflect in the House. You know, independents get up now and again; uh, they tend to be very hard to remove. But when they go, it often comes back to the to the party in question. So I'm not sure it's going con- <laughs> to. Continuing. Oh, no, no, and just no, on that I, point, I, I think that's
3: I, why Indi will be particularly interesting at the coming federal election to see whether one independent can pass the seat on to another independent. As I Cathy think, McGowan uh, is yeah.
0: trying to do. And, yeah. and don't forget, even in
3: the Senate, the gov- the new changes uh, that the government, the
2: uh, the Mal Turnbull government introduced to the way the Senate election works, they've done away with group ticket voting. So you're going to see, that, A, there's no scope for the Glen Drury pres- preference whisperers anyway but you're going to see less of these flash in the pan Ricky Muir types pop out, out of nowhere i actually think you know on the i know we've had the the coalition had a good ipsos poll lately but i think on balance Labor will get a pretty strong majority in the house of representatives and in the senate but, i think they'll have they'll have uh, control effectively with the greens so i think we'll be moving back that, to a stability um,
1: model isn't that senate change, a symptom rather than a a cause. So the reason that that the government wanted to push through and the Labour Party wanted to push through with those Senate changes is because there were so many people looking for alternatives. And I think, I, I would never say that this is a trend that's going to last forever, but we are seeing the either breakdown or massive um, shift in two-party systems around the world in the United States is obviously another really powerful example where people are unhappy with the duopoly that they have faced for the last 50 years, 70 years in the Australian case. And that trend, there's no reason to believe that that trend is going to Going to stop. There's no stability on the horizon. We are going to see more and more independence. We're going to see more and more pressure at the seams of our major parties, and these instabilities are going to are going to continue and increase.
2: I guess the U.S. is an interesting example because the duopoly system, the Republican Democrat, uh, because their voting system is wholly two-party. It's very very difficult for an outsider to get a look in. Um, so that. Uh, to me, confirms my point that if the electoral system is such that it's difficult for minor parties to get a look in, what we may see is opposition coming from within political parties. And we may see, uh, you know, that depends on the Liberal Party remaining united through, you know, if it does indeed go into opposition, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. And in any event, the Liberal Party is now a hodgepodge of different state entities being, you know, the Liberal National Party of Queensland, the Country Liberal Party. Uh, But again, my instinct is that the duopoly won't uh, be disrupted, I think the electoral laws in and of themselves um, would indicate that it'll persist and there'll be some other mechanism to overhaul yeah. the, the party yeah. system.
0: It does occur to me, though, that um, I'm just going to take for once uh, an optimistic, a Panglossian view that all, <laughs> all, all this is for the good. I know, I know this is out of this character. Is very
1: off, this is very off-brand, Scott. Yeah, well,
0: what, must, must be in the water. Uh, but, um, you know, if if you know the uh, the theory of politics is that you're always looking for fifty plus one uh, to meet in the middle if that's if that's the objective of a pluralist thing, um, th- there's an arg- because you use the word stability, Chris, and funnily enough, both parties say that elect me with a thumping majority and I will deliver stability. And, but voters can't actually vote mm. for stability. Mm. When they cast their vote for mm. either uh, either of the major parties, they may well be saying, I want that thumping majority. I want stability, but you don't necessarily get it because, to the extent that the political parties are efficient, they will be capturing fifty percent of the two-party preferred vote. So, and I'm thinking of Dan Hannan actually reflected on this when he came out as a guest of the uh, the IPA and the MRC um, late last year, the great um, member of the European Parliament, and he was asked about Australia's political stabi- instability and. In, five prime ministers in six years and he thinks this is why you haven't had a populist backlash this is great your parliamentary system is actually delivering a certain level of responsiveness to the wishes of the voters as, as we try and work out what the median voters are so that's the panglossian view that maybe all this has actually been better than we thought
1: Oh, no, I've, I've never liked the idea that our cycling through prime ministers was somehow a fundamental flaw of the system. I think we, we keep replacing our prime ministers until we find one we like, and we haven't done so yet.
0: Mm-hmm. A continuing search. Now, Chris, you are in the US uh, where similar but different issues are playing out. What, what has uh, the president done recently that's attracted your attention?
1: Look, so if you've been living under a rock, um, you will. This will be news that last Friday, Donald Trump declared a national emergency, um, uh, which means that the uh, two things: first of all, he signed an appropriations bill, so the government wasn't gonna shut down, which was very exciting for me because it meant that I could get into the country without waiting in an unusually long line, which was wonderful. Um, So he's signed the appropriation bill, but by declaring a national emergency, what he's allowed to do, or what the national emergency legislation allows him to do, is reallocate funds that have already been appropriated for the government for other functions of government, um, for the um, wall on the Mexican border. Um, So he's getting the $1.3 billion from an appropriations bill, but he's also taking $600 million out of the treasury drug forfeiture um, uh, fund, $2.5 billion from the defense department's drug interdiction program which is a global anti-drug fund and 3.5 billion dollars from the military construction budget and you can imagine that declaring a national emergency has um, a lot of people very agitated I think in part because the, um, the, the phrase national emergency doesn't really reflect what um uh, what what the legislation allows him to do. It's not like there are tanks in the streets out on the, the streets of Silicon Valley. But but I, I do think this is this is a very, very unfortunate development. This is um the declaration by the President, unilateral declaration by the President that he is going to spend money that Congress has repeatedly repeatedly refused to appropriate for him. That's a really bad trend in government. I think the use of executive power in the United States presidency is out of control and has been out of control, not uh, not in Donald Trump's years, but but for many decades. And it just seems to be getting worse. I think this is another step on a very bad trend towards executive power in the United States.
0: Yes. I must say, Chris, um, it's the trend that interests me because on on its merits, um, as you say, uh, this is not tanks in the streets because it, it does have that connotation of El Presidente declaring a state of emergency, suspending the parliament, su- you know, declaring martial law, blah, 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 whereas what we discover is that uh, I read somewhere that over a 100 different statutes uh, in US uh, legislation enable uh, the executive or the president to declare essentially a national emergency or a state of emergency and to do, to do certain things. And uh, these provisions, you know, do have to be made. So it's not it's not like um, a royal prerogative above and beyond legislation. It is in legislation. So the power is there uh, in the constitution. Uh, sorry, in the in the various legislation. But uh, but it, it is the trend which is concerning. Um, you know, just continuing to bend the axe. And uh, Trump apparently was at one time talking about. Uh, Using three or four different pieces of legislation, he settled on one in the end. I don't know whether you'd call that a a win from your point of view.
1: <laughs> no, I, th- I think this is I think this is this, this is very bad. I, in in that sense, we should be so, as supporters of limited government, as supporters of democratic and um, uh, responsive government. We should be very angry that there are so many ways for the president to get around Congress's appropriation power. Now, the fact that Congress has voluntarily given the president that power is is no defense. In fact, that should make us angry uh, because that means that Congress is not protecting its own spending prerogatives, one of the great disputes in parliamentary history going back to well before the English Civil War.
3: Mm. I mean, what strikes me is that how many and I wasn't aware of that until I was reading about this current national emergency, just how many previously declared national emergencies are still ongoing. I think the Mm. figure's around about 30 national emergencies for all manner of things from um, the well-known such as 9-11 to... um, way more obscure ones and I think um, that just shows that the whole concept is being overused you know like if you want to think about and say in in US history a national emergency maybe something like you know the bombing of Pearl Harbour or something might constitute as a national emergency but most of the others um, often they've been given national emergency power to take particular interventions in overseas conflicts such as um, Barack Obama in Yemen and Things like that, but it does seem that the whole power um, is being just abused and used for all manner of things, which could be dealt with in more uh, normal measures. My concern with this is actually the precedent it sets. As much as you know,
2: I support building the wall, and I think most of us, you know, would su- would support some level of border security. But my thought on matters like this is: what if and when the shoe is on the other foot? What if President Bernie Sanders or President God forbid, Ocasio Cortez decides that to declare a climate emergency and build and redirect money towards windmills or something, or confiscate, you know, people's coal power plants and so on. But the point that's been made by other colleagues of ours at the RPA is, well, okay, deal with that situation when it comes up. Um, this is a wholly different situation. There are. Arguments that this is an emergency insofar as the caravans coming from South Latin America, the, insofar as the uh, human trafficking that occurs across the border. And the other thing to actually remember is that, you know, a lot has been made about the president using a prerogative in this way and there have been absurd um, comparisons to Zimbabwe and other sort of dictatorships. This will uh, end Trump has been very open about how this is going to play out. In fact, more open than any other president would be. He had that sing-songy press conference where he said, and then we're going to go to court and we're probably going to get a bad out come from this one and then we'll have to go to the supreme court so the point of it is that there is this check and balance against this presidential power in the judicial system and uh we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out
0: yeah that
1: is that... yeah but go chris what 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 he's done is uh and i understand that you know we'll, we'll fight the battles when when they come and when um president sanders declares that we need a Green New Deal and it's national emergency. We will fight that when it comes. But from the perspective of the left, that's an even clearer instance of a national emergency. And so what he's done is not just what Donald Trump has done is not just set a precedent, but sort of lock in this as a, mo- as a mode of governing that mm. the left will and any future president will immediately look to. Can you imagine what the discussions are or will be during the um, Democratic primary? We're already at the staged that Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, all these sorts of policies that were that wild um, ideas just a couple of years ago are, are the basic, the standard proposal. Can you imagine how they believe that they would you know, stop a climate emergency from their own perspective, from their own frame of reference? This is a, a climate change national emergency is an unambiguous um, necessity.
3: And that's what I sort of fear with a number of things in the Trump presidency, that they are actually, you know, stimulating um, the revival of the left, whereas, the, you know, I think the Reagan presidency did enormous good in um, undermining the whole left across a whole range of fronts. So I think the Trump presidency is tending um, to embolden the left, and I uh, fear that in a post-Trump world we will have a way uh, stronger Uh, left across a whole range of fronts than the the left that uh, was around in 2016 when he won the presidency.
1: You're this right. is a big problem, I think, with conservative governments actually uh, across the board, and we've seen it a lot in Australia that they seem to have this belief that they will either be in power forever, or that nothing that they, no powers that they gather for themselves, will be captured by their successors. Um, and it, it's obviously not true. And we think back, you know, when the Howard government introduced the federalization of industrial relations with yes. work choices, the, and the somehow incredible? the idea was that. Hmm. Well, the national curriculum somehow the idea is oh the good guys will always have control of yep. this; it'll be yep. fine. Yeah. Oh, well, you well, they, they, all the
0: students will be studying uh, yep. Western civilization Asia. and yes. how to read and write English. Mm. You mean they're yeah, not right now? Right. Sustainability, <laughs> diversity, equity—that's what they study. Yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and, and uh, how uh, to take
1: a uh, cl- protest. Uh, mm. Conservative governments have never really, or they they too far too rarely sort of make that calculation. If you grab a mechanism of power, it will be used by your opponents much more dedicatedly. And and that's why a, you need conservative governments to actually hold the line on those basic principles. Chris, I don't, um, and when they don't, we, we, we end up in trouble.
2: Chris, I don't disagree, but to play devil's advocate, the, the point that has been made by, again, some of our IPA colleagues you know, around the water cooler is, that's all very well and good, and to say conservatives should play by the rules and respect by the constitution, but do we really expect that the left wouldn't resort to these powers anyway? I mean, the left has a completely different modus operandi. They see their utopian vision as paramount above process, and they will hijack any and all institutions, governing mechanisms, uh, to get there. Again, I don't disagree with you. I'm just, I think it's unrealistic to think that it's always conservative governments that open the door for these things. I think that the the left it may very well go down
1: this road anyway. So why should we? Our goal goal on the conservative or libertarian or liberal um, side of politics should be to set up institutions that it makes it hard for people to do bad things with the power of government. I'm, I'm not as interested in the wall or a climate change emergency or anything like that as I am in setting up those institutions to protect us against overarching Government and if we abandon that quest, if we abandon that goal in sight of much more short-term goals, then then we, we lose the whole game. We, we not only do we um, do, do we just get small. Small benefits, um, a wall, or or whatever we got, uh, you know, a national curriculum that was slightly conservative leading. We also we also lose the capacity to mount the arguments. We lose the capacity to protect ourselves against the um, the depredations of the opponents. Fair point.
0: I wonder if one of the other things that's happening, Chris, over the over the long arc of time is uh, even. Uh, I remember uh, at university we used to study these things called constitutional conventions. Uh, there's much, much less interest now because things have, be, uh, have been legalized. Essentially, everything's justiciable, <laughs> yeah. and and even uh, I didn't, Kideon, I didn't realize um, when you quoted Trump before that he'd actually introduced these measures and then talked about what would happen when it was blocked by the Supreme Court. So, oh
2: yeah, no, he did. And but this is this is getting slightly off topic. But this is what makes Trump such a a brilliantly authentic person, rather than sticking to his guns and keeping up this um, legal fiction that what he was doing was completely A-OK, he said, look, you know, it's going to be... Could challenged. be illegal, might not be legal. Yeah, well, look, we'll find out. And he literally, you know, nobody else would attack the judiciary in the way they did. Look, the Ninth Circuit's going to give us a bad... Rap yeah. and they're going to give us some unfair outcome, but then we'll take it to the Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court. He's very open about how strategically he's going about. This. And that,
0: and this is the point. So when you have, say, a Westminster system, which doesn't a pure one uh, like in the UK, which doesn't have a written constitution, constitutional conventions are uh, incredibly important because uh, that they are the uh, the unwritten rules uh, that set the boundaries of what you can do. Whereas when when you have a written constitution like America. Of course, what is right and proper to do is whatever is legal. So this is the, the legalism of the age, you know, lawyers run things and Australia's gone down yeah. that road as well. Everything is so, uh, with the, even with the Medivac bill uh, that Gideon referred to before, um, everyone thought uh, that would give them the opportunity to bring uh, everyone off Nauru back onto the Australian mainland and, and uh, dear old Morrison's got, oh, well, Christmas Island's sort of Australia but close sort enough. of n- close yeah. enough um <laughs> and and the only question becomes is is that legal was it the intent of the statute so you know we get we get what we pay for all of you listening out there I'm sure none of our listeners wanted this you know the lawyers to take everything over but this is what you get
1: yep. well, uh, one of my favorite descriptions of Donald trump is that he makes the subtext into text which is basically he refuses <laughs> to play correct the, he, he refuses to play the the sort of book bourgeois hypocrisy that has run so much of our government and uh, for, for so long. I mean, that's that's basically a fundamental element mm-hmm. of democratic discourse. Well, it, it, wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be
2: um, me if I didn't quote uh, Den- one of Dennis Miller's jokes. He says, you know, Wh- whatever you think of Trump, his inner voice and his outer voice are vaguely you know, the same, uh, <laughs> whereas I don't think Hillary's inner and outer voice have even had a cup of coffee together. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's cold, and never be an accusi- accusation of dog whistling when it comes <laughs> to Trump. Much overworked phrase. Um, another one of Trump's great ideas, Chris, was a space force. Is that, is that just more Trumpian madness, or uh, is this actually a thing?
1: Yeah, so I was excited to see that he was announcing that um, uh, today, or if was re-announcing or or giving it a signing ceremony or or, or, or or so forth. And and what it really um, reminds us uh, of the last month or so that the space race seems to be heating up again. Um, so uh, the other day, the Opportunity rover died, which was the um, Mars uh, rover that had landed in, on the surface of Mars in 2004. It was only supposed to be there for three months, but it lasted. 15 years but this comes at the same time as the um chinese government has managed to land a rover on the far side of the moon which is a major first donald trump has signed the space force directive and it early on in his presidency also announced that he was um uh, uh, that he wanted to land, um, humans on Mars by 2033. It looks a lot like the cold war in space or, um, action in space is back. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons. We, we, or the, the West spends an enormous amount of money on space. It's never been really clear what the purpose of all that spending is? Is it to symbolically put humans into space? Is it to develop new technologies? Is NASA's job investigating basic science? Um, and then on the other side, we've got a massive amount of private investment in space. So I, I wanted to ask the panel, what, wh- is, this, is this good? I mean, should we be welcoming a return to the space race? Should we, wel- we be welcoming and sort of urging for more investment in space? What? what where should we go from here?
3: Well, I, I think I've obviously got no problem with private investment in space. If Elon yeah. Musk or anybody else wants to, you know, indulge in private investment in space, good luck to them. But I reckon there is a very strong correlation between um, government investing in space programs with the growth in the size of government. I think it's no coincidence that the previous, you know, manifestation of this was during um, the late 50s leading into the 60s in the growth of, you know, big government... Uh, The JFK era, but leading into Johnson's Great Society, these were all big things and associated with a Cold War, where you have governments uh, on massive scale competing with each other, trying to prove who's the bigger and stronger um, government. Um, I think it's um, no coincidence in the sort of the period when we might have had a, had a, a era where. Uh, more liberal, small government ideas came back into flavour for a while. We didn't hear quite so much about space programs and trying to be the best in space. While there was ongoing space work, it was much more just a, a steady continuum rather than trying to prove a point. And now we seem to be moving back into an era of bigger government in many ways and compete countries competing so it's no surprise in a sense that we're now going to p- potentially see you know the US and China each trying to compete to show who can have a bigger and better space program so I think uh, all, all good if it's private investment in space but I think government investment in space except on a small scale on sort of you know Genuine scientific research, you know, there might be a place for that. But in terms of trying to be the biggest and the best in space, I think we should be actively discouraging any government from trying to do that.
2: You're right, and and Richard, you, 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 um, there's also the matter of our own government here in Australia that's investing in a space program, and and. and the Australian program doesn't even have the sexy Cold War sort of Space Force veneer about it. It's yeah. just, it's playing into this same idea of we need to invest in science and, you know, we need to create jobs <laughs> in Adelaide. I mean, the this... Dish
3: was a good film, you know, the film, you know, we did have a... Oh, The, the Dish, yeah. yeah. it was good.
2: Yeah. Well, well, correct, but this is, the, this is uh, you know, the science minister, I can't even remember who it is these days, coming out and saying this will create jobs and everything. It's the same old logic, you know, creating jobs, you, sh- you we may as well... Um, pay five thousand people to dig a hole, and another five thousand people to fill it in again. Well, uh, so it's just another South, extension South of,
0: Australian economy, right there. A, yeah.
2: an, another extension of crude in, in, industry policy. There's no reason Australia needs a space program. What what we need it for? And, and again, I totally agree. If some enterprising uh, billionaire like Elon Musk or Richard Branson wants to go to space, go nuts. But I don't see why we should fork out for it. The other
0: the other thing, but about isn't that it,
1: interesting? Sorry, uh,
0: well, just one final observation on on uh, you know, is it a rerun of the '60s? Uh, Mark Stein, uh, who's the you know the prophet of declineism, he asks a question. and I think he has a point. You know, could could government even do it if it wanted to? I mean, in the what they did in the '50s and '60s was insane. Essentially, they they. They strapped these little capsules to the top of about three thousand tons of hydrogen and oxygen. It's like, what could possibly go wrong? Mm. And um, but that was because they were in a race. That's what they did. And as and NASA, in a way, it was a tremendous achievement. And mm. and that's why the left loves to talk about, look at what government can do when it comes together. But that was while it was um, a startup. As soon as it became institutionalized, um, they lost the plot. Uh, everything becomes wildly expensive, bureaucratized. You know, government couldn't do it if they wanted. And and, and a final observation, I mean, the Chinese say they went to the dark side (laughs) of the moon, but how do we really know? How, Can't do we, see how do we know that they,
2: <laughs> the Americans went there in 1969?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They got to uh, space That's always it. where yeah. this conversation was yeah, going, yeah, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but isn't it interesting in, insofar as that it's now a three-sided race. So let's say um, there's China and the United States, and and China is an analogue of an alternative competing economic system to the United States. There's a sort of Chinese state capitalist model against Um, an American crony capitalist model Um, but then on the other side there's also this competing race by the private sector as well and so I I did notice that um, uh, on Thursday there's going to be a privately funded mission to the moon an Israeli mission to the moon um, run on a um, Elon Musk SpaceX um, uh, rocket, which you know, if if that happens, if that is successful, that will be an extraordinary achievement. And what we're seeing is now the ultimate ideological contest, which is two large governments on one side, uh, on on two sides of the uh, triangle versus the the private sector, which have to deal with different incentives and 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 different um, issues, of course. But it's, but given the amount of private sector money flowing into into space at the moment with all the private and government satellite launches, most of which are now launched by, um, uh, or many of which are now launched by private rockets. This is a this is this is the ideological dispute that we wanted to see in the 1960s, I think.
0: And um, of course, here we are, 50 years later, and they're still strapping things to the tops of rockets. So all that stuff about how it's going to drive new technology.
2: Trust the Israelis to be the first ones to land on the
1: moon privately, just sitting <laughs> no, in no, Tel Aviv. No, no, uh, God, that's- <laughs> That's, no, that, that's really impressive. So these rockets, so they are rockets, um, of course, but they're rockets that are reusable. Are oh, they smart rockets? Sustainable rockets. There you it's go. It's a feather in the cap. And I remember a couple of years ago seeing these SpaceX rockets land themselves down on a platform in the ocean. It's one of the most extraordinary human achievements. We've managed to take this just, just physical embodiment of an explosion, and now we can just move it around like an aeroplane.
0: Oh, that's great! I just love that a bloke can make electric cars on the one hand, and and on the, <laughs> and otherwise he makes rockets,
1: large explosions, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: controlled explosions. Gentlemen, this is the part of the show where we ask, "What have you been reading, watching, or listening to?" Um, well,
2: I uh, over the summer holidays recently finished uh, the book "Trumponomics" by Stephen Moore and Arthur Laffer, which was a very interesting coming from those two, who are you know quite. Uh, you know staples of the conservative establishment so to speak very respected economists and they tell the story about how they were brought in by Donald Trump very very early in his campaign and they were sceptical largely because of the trade stuff which we all don't like and and a few of the other rougher parts of Trump's policy agenda but they were very impressed by his ambitious targets for economic growth they did they were surprised by the overlap between sort of conventional Reaganomics and Trump's outlook on the world Uh, and they've sort of told that story but then use that to segue into saying look you know Trump's agenda you know we not we not might not like his character people might not like the tweeting and everything else I don't you know I personally don't mind that I think it's all part of his his charm and his showmanship but people might not like his methods but the results we're seeing are very good so um and and they actually correctly say that the years 1988 to 2016 were actually reasonably ideologically barren ones for the conservatives in the US. The Bush uh, years didn't cover themselves in glory in a fiscal sense, the compassionate conservative thing. Trump is a transformational figure insofar as he's taking the party, which was sort of the bombed out uh, post-Reagan atrophy, uh, while well, Reagan was very good at atrophy during those years, but now has he's transformed into a, a working-class, pro-growth, pro-jobs party. So certainly worth a read and uh, certainly good for Trump fans like myself who sometimes struggle with the rougher parts of his policy agenda.
0: Yeah, so Laffer is famously on the uh, supply side of economics. Correct, which, the Laffer uh, curve. Which is what uh, was it the uh, or, uh, George Bush the Elder called voodoo economics. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, d- it does actually say that if you have... Uh, this strange theory that if you, if people are actually allowed to keep some of the money that they earn, mm. they might actually work harder and invest more and uh, and take more risks. Pray for the day. V- very strange theory that.
1: Yeah. Gideon, Gideon where where do they see? trumponomics heading in a, in a post-trump world so donald trump won't always be the president and eventually we're going to need sort of free market thinkers in in uh, do, will we have free market things in a trumpian mode or is he a transformational character whose influence ends at the end of his presidency or how, how do they sort of forecast that out i
2: think they well i think they leave that open in, in the post-trump sense it's more of an assessment on on trump and a and a rethinking of Trump from you know pure conservative economics and they're very open about things they still don't agree with him on you know not least of all trade but I think the implication is that um the, you know Re- Reagan's influence on the Republican Party was evident you know decades after he ceased to be president I think the the subtext is that you know Trump's realignment of the party as a, as a working-class blue-collar party will uh, you know if the conservative conservatism in the u.s is to survive it needs to make that an institutional and long-term
1: trend
0: chris how about you what have you been looking at lately
1: so i've been reading a well i have just finished reading a hell of a book called um midnight at chernobyl which is uh by um, a fellow named adam higginbotham it's a story it's a it's only just been released it's a story Uh, Of the our best now understanding of the sort of moment to moment um, experience of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, we um, if you uh, it's a hell of a story, um, uh, and it's it's really horrifying, and it's sort of this the it's almost post apocalyptic in the in the specifics, um, and and just a just a really really engaging read on on the one hand. But I think it's also really important if we're going to engage in these energy debates to actually know specifically what went wrong in previous nuclear accidents, so that if we are to argue for the the case for, as I think we should, and I'm more convinced now than ever, to argue the case for nuclear as a um, safe and reliable power source, to know what were the specific flaws in the Soviet nuclear industry that led to the Chernobyl disaster and the, the books. The books really honest and open and interesting in that. And and Adam Higginbotham rightly points out that there are just consistent findings that nuclear is still the safest power source. The, um, there's some data that I've pulled up here to suggest that the deaths per terawatt hours from nuclear um, energy are are ninety ninety um, deaths per. Uh, terawatt hours compared to 150 for wind, 440 for solar and and, and so forth. So nuclear is a very safe power source. So understanding why accidents have happened in the past is really important. It is also just a hell of a book and a really harrowing and fascinating read.
0: So you're, uh, after that, is your conclusion that something like Chernobyl was perhaps A, an outlier and, and B, that the current technologies are, are just – Sufficiently robust that you can't just keep throwing that against proponents of of, of, um, of nuclear power, saying, "Oh, well, we'll just oh, you that, know that's, that's right."
1: Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely an outlier, and this is this is even at the time was deeply outdated technology, deeply um, significantly different from the West. They made specific um, engineering design decisions that made the um, uh, reactor very unstable and very hard to manage and they did so for political reasons it, to to compare a modern nuclear reactor in a um, uh, developed economy with chernobyl is is obviously insane and obviously uh, un, un, unfair I mean, to, to, to the state of nuclear technology and that that technology is still evolving and changing um, uh, right now. So, the understanding how Chernobyl happened, understanding um, uh, what failures occurred, actually helps you reckon with the Chernobyl's influence in political and popular culture. And that's why this is this is just a, a really fascinating book for those reasons.
0: Excellent. And uh, for those who want to learn more about the latest in nuclear technology, there is an excellent article by. Ben Hurd on our website first appeared in the IPA review in about uh, June last year I think and uh, so go to our website, have a look for Ben Hurd's article on nuclear energy.
3: Hmm. And I've been reading um, David Kemp's The Land of Dreams which is the first volume of his history of liberalism in Australia and it's, uh, I expected it would be an outstanding book and it is an outstanding book. The, the features of it that strike me is what I think hasn't been done before is putting um, Australian um, colonial politics into an international context of the, the liberal ideas of that time. And David shows really well how those, the development of liberal ideas, particularly in England, were then transported to Australia and how the debates here had simil- some similarities with the political debates um, in England, but also s- with, with a colonial twist. Um, for instance, obviously in, in the 1830s, where you get the Great Reform Act in England. Finally, reforming um, the parliament to give uh, increasing the franchise. At the same time, you're having debates in Australia about whether a, a local legislative council, how democratic um, it should be. And you have the twist in Australia where you have, you know, should. Um, emancipated convicts be allowed to do things such as um, sit sit on a legislative council or be part of juries once you move to having jury trials. And it's really fascinating to see how those things play out. And as always, with that early period of Australian um, history, um, every time I read any work in this period, I just am constantly fascinated by the fact that here you have this um, outpost where you dump some of the worst people from you know the British um, citizen, you know crim- people who'd been considered to be criminals, um, and obviously in many cases were you know criminals hmm. and sometimes of quite seriousness um, in in England, and a few of them did continue to be criminals when they came out here, but somehow you get In very quickly, this very successful society starting to develop and uh, where the children of some of these convicts end up becoming um, not only um, bigger, stronger, healthier because of better climate and better diet, um, but also becoming very uh, uh, solid citizens and community, very entrepreneurial. And I think it's a classic example of by um, setting at setting up and developing and being very thoughtful about liberal institutions, really thinking about how you want your society to develop. You create some of the right incentives that do create um, a prosperous society. Um, obviously, and David also does, you know, address we the, the whole issue, which um, many of the left see is the only issue in Australian um, colonial history, is the treatment of the Indigenous population. And David does, you know, address that and look at how um, different... Uh, s- strands of thought about how we should have, how those, at the time, the best way to deal with the Indigenous population and how there were many people who were very sympathetic to the Indigenous population b- but often you know struggled to come up with the right um, solution to it. So, look, anybody with any interest in Austri- either liberal ideas or Australian history, it, it is a wonderful um, book, and I'm sure, um, as the other volumes in the series, as they're progressively... Uh, release will also add to that but i can't recommend it strongly enough to i'm sure most sort of listeners to an ipa podcast this is the sort of book that you really should be (laughs) buying and reading
1: (laughs) australia is an extraordinary natural experiment and suppose we took um uh criminals from the other side of the world we dropped them into a environment that they were a very alien environment to them and and 200 years later we have more than 200 years later we we have a prosperous developed society when there was no i mean it's it's debatable about how clear the intention was to create a society but it certainly wasn't shared by everyone on the ship
3: but it's not even (laughs) 200 years later we had it one generation you know so quickly yeah. that it be, became a you know a society where so many of these you know even some of the the convicts themselves became very uh, prosperous um, citizens and it shows again you know given the right incentive of land and and gradually developing a, you know a market economy and David's very good at discussing because obviously initially it was a very you know government controlled economy where you know convicts worked for the government and most of the, the economic decisions were made by government but gradually how um, you know, free enterprise took over um, in in many ways and created you know incentives for people to be law-abiding citizens rather than criminals.
1: And indeed, yeah, um, and 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 you you can't sort of get away from that's an ideological thing. If if they 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 thought they had to set up a you know quasi-liberal private enterprise. Respecting society, they just—that's what a British society would look like, regardless yeah. of whether it's it's in Britain or yeah. just on some strange yeah. continent on the other side of the planet.
3: And, and we're lucky that you know some of the governors who were sent out were um, people of a liberal persuasion, people like Richard Burke, who was governor of New South Wales for about seven years in the eighteen thirties, was a, was a, a person of liberal views who um, understood you know the growing liberal world, and it's also just how many of the people in that era. Had grappled with these ideas of re- they'd you know read Adam Smith or you know read Bentham and thought about the ideas about how society should be structured and obviously it was also a period where um, conservatism had had become in one sense quite strong because the fears of what had happened in France with the French Revolution was still fresh in people's mind and that that ongoing tension between. Um, conservatives and liberals in in, in the Australian context between exclusives who didn't want emancipists to have any role in colonial society in terms of decision making and you know it's fortunate obviously overall the liberals won that argument against the Tories and you know created a a liberal society where people um, could prosper and become you know part of society in terms of serving in, in democratic institutions and getting involved such that by you know, the 1850s, the Australian colonies become, you know, the first places in the world to bring in um, so, so many features of, that we take for granted in democratic societies.
0: So a ripper book, uh, David Kemp's Land of Dreams, which you can find on the uh, Melbourne University Press website right next to uh, Mick Gatto's autobiography. and yeah, uh, Michelle Payne's <laughs> best-selling, <laughs> best-selling book. Yes, yes. Uh, 20, she sold 20,000. Many, how many is your book sold, uh, Chris?
1: Look, we don't talk about that, Scott. Um. <laughs> Academic <laughs> publishing, okay.
0: That's right. right. Uh, I've been reading a book uh, which uh, I'm perhaps not quite uh, so uh, animated about praising, but it is interesting. So it's called Al- Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse by Timothy P. Carney, uh, who's at the Washington Examiner and also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And this is in the genre of books um, – Which go to explaining who were the Trump voters, and particularly he's looking at not just who voted for Trump in the general election, but who drove his drive, uh, who drove his drive, uh, who pushed him through the Republican primaries, the um, the alienated uh, uh, mainly rural uh, working class, uh, mainly white working class, and uh, this these books, uh, some of them in this genre predated the election. I'm thinking particularly of Charles Murray's Coming Apart. Uh, Robert Putnam's uh, Bowling Alone, and Putnam's since written Our Kids, which talk about the, uh, the impacts of socioeconomic change in the, uh, in the heartland of America, if you like. And uh, Tip Carney's gone back to that, and it's, it's really almost a distillation of all this. There's um, a couple of original thoughts, uh, which I'll come back to, but everything is in there. It's like a melange of, uh, of Putnam, of uh, Charles Murray... Uh, Patrick deneen who we've also uh, Bush, Andrew Bushnell's talked about on this show. I think I
2: heard that bloke um, being interviewed on the Cato, uh, sorry, the Reason podcast. Indeed, by Nick that's how it came about. Yeah, Go, what, what did you think, Gideon? Well, I, I, um, well from, based on what I hear, heard from the uh, you know the summary from the podcast, I thought it, I'm surprised to say you said you're not that enamoured by it because uh, to me it, it seems like it has echoes of things that I've really enjoyed, like J.D. Vance and, so, as you said, Charles Murray. So it goes a long way to explaining the the decline of these parts of America and how the, the loss of economic... Uh, Vitality has actually then carried over to the loss of community institutions. To the loss of you know when the when the, the example this bloke gave was um, when the the factory closes down. It's not just losing the factory; it's losing the diner that the workers used to go to f- for a cup of coffee during their coffee break. And then it's losing the church because government steps in and uh, supersedes it with welfare payments instead of uh, neighbourly uh, community institutions and so on. So um, anyway,
0: uh, no, no, absolutely, it's a it's a story well told and. Um, uh, I, it's just that if you've already read Putnam and Murray yeah. and and Vance, then then maybe this is not so new to you. But uh, if you haven't, this is a this is a great introduction and distillation. And you touched on um, I think there were two original points for me, or things that are brought into sharp focus. One is one is which is the process you just described, which everyone talks about the hollowing out of society in in the heartland. And everyone says, oh yeah, but manufacturing peaked in hmm. you know fifty five or seventy two or whatever when the Studebaker plant closed, but he does make the point, Kearney does make the point that the social effects of that might take a generation. Correct. So it's not like the, the diner and the uh, veterans of foreign wars branch closes the next day. Mm. It's like, as that generation dies off, those institutions aren't replaced. And it leads to his other original insight is, so this is very Tocquevillian as well, um, that if you take away the civil society institutions at the local level, well, then people start to look up. Correct. And so again, you start to get this uh, obsession with the federal government and the, and the ability of, and, and of course, coming from you know national reviews, mainly never Trump, so he's talking to David French about it. And they're like, well, Trump can't fix these things. And of course, the, the thing was when Trump stood up and said the American dream is dead, that's, that was like an electric shock through their systems. It's like, ah, somebody thinks like I do. And also, these um, demographics are interesting. It's like, the it's not the poorest of the poor who voted for Trump. Most of them are in jobs, but they're looking around their devastated communities and mm. seeing other people without jobs, opioid crisis, the whole thing. So... <laughs> Um, I guess he does bring it all together and certainly if you want an introduction listen to that podcast we'll put the link in the um in the program well, it's gonna be
2: my staff pick for hey what did I miss Steve so Solomon no, no still, still can you can still have it you,
0: you got in first you got in first on on our podcast but um now have it do have a look oh, and I and, and then I was going to say just Denine so again at the end of it I don't think he like anyone like what what on earth do you do about this it's it's um what could trump even do even if he mm. wanted to and that's where he, he does retreat very much to uh the i guess the rural catholic social vision that patrick Deneen finishes uh his book uh, why liberalism failed on which is you know let's retreat to our communities let's rebuild the social institutions gather around he's very um uh uh, very much in saying that most of the social institutions in America, at least, grow up around churches, and that may well be borne out by the sociological evidence. So that may be a solution for small towns in Iowa. I'm, I'm not sure it actually speaks much to the yeah, wider it's American It's such trends. a
3: different thing than morning in America, isn't it, in the Reagan era, where mm-hmm. the whole <laughs> Reagan message was we can optimistically fix all this stuff whereas yeah. now it's a much more pessimistic world well, view, isn't it?
0: That's right. I mean, Trump Trump said, I can fix this, mm. and uh, the irony is Carney says, no, you can't.
3: Mm.
2: Well, I mean, call me old-fashioned, but the the so, so societal institutions have fallen away after the economic rot set in. Uh, maybe by repairing the economy and putting millions of Americans back to work, that might kick-start...
0: Uh, he, he explicitly, but, explicitly uh, he addresses that. I think he mm. uses a couple of metaphors. The one I remember is, you know, if you put a concrete slab yeah. on top of a bunch of grass it'll die and if you take the slab away it doesn't necessarily mean the grass will grow back or something yeah. Yeah, yeah. About five be,
2: you have to use of fertilizer or something but i don't <laughs> know what that looks like in a uh, public policy let, sense. Let, let's, let's mangle our
1: metaphor to the point that you- to the point i think richard just made then which is it's hard to, sorry it's easy to imagine a revitalization of local communities in rural areas or in small towns or so forth it's really really hard to imagine how you would do that in big urban areas and those big urban areas are growing in part because of the changes to the economy people are moving um, to a large extent from smaller communities from smaller cities to larger cities to chase the jobs so it's sort of it's it's hard to it's hard to know how you would get that that really appealing Catholic social vision story where we all get together around a church or around some sort of community organisation in a dense urban area.
0: Yeah, very, very different challenges. Um, we might talk about that in future podcasts. Uh, you're listening to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. This has been a great discussion. Uh, you can, of course, subscribe for further podcasts uh, through iTunes, Podbean or any of the other great podcast platforms. This show is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support our research and this podcast, you can either join or donate by visiting ipa.org.au. Uh, today, we've been joined by, my first of all, my co-host, Chris Berg from Live from America, Thanks, Scott. Also Richard Allsop. Thank you very much, Scott. And Gideon Rosner. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gideon. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Looking Forward.